0: Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Tricky tendons. I'll bet you can recall a clinical scenario that involved maybe an exasperated patient and perhaps you racking your brain trying to tame a tricky tendon. Well, today we're blending the best tendon science with the best clinical practice advice from one of the best clinician scientists in the tendon field. Dr. Ebony Rio is an Australian National Health and Medical Research Council Senior Research Fellow with the La Trobe University Sport and Exercise Medicine Research Centre. She's got extensive experience as a sports physiotherapist, including at Olympic, Paralympic and Commonwealth Games and elite sports training centres in Australia. And today, Ebony brings her trademark blend of evidence-informed practice as she shares top clinical tips for diagnosing and managing tricky tendons. Dr. Ebony Rio. thanks for joining me on JOSPT Insights today.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me. I don't get to speak with you enough, so I'm very excited, Claire. And I am so looking forward
0: to learning from you and to bring your voice to the JOSPT community, because I'm sure that many in our community will benefit from your very special blend of high-quality clinical practice skills and your extensive experience as a sports physio, your research on tendons, on tendon health and how to keep tendons happy. And that's what we're going to focus on today. So when someone comes in to see you, Ebony, with what you suspect might be Achilles tendinopathy, and she says, look, I've tried everything. I've tried physio. Nothing's working. I'm really not sure what you can help me out with, but I'm prepared to listen. What do you want to know? And
1: where do you go with that? Where do you start? What are your goals? So the first place to start is to really nail your diagnoses In the posterior ankle, there can be about nine differential diagnoses and actually they can coexist. So you can get a really tricky tendon. Someone that presents with suspected Achilles tendinopathy, just go back to basics. Take a really good subjective assessment and don't let them carry their diagnoses with them because people might have had an imaging-based diagnosis if they've seen a lot of different people, it's amazing how much something can persist and it might be inaccurate. And the devil's in the detail. So I'm going to give you an example of how you might contrast an Achilles tendinopathy with a peritendon and why we care. Your patient comes in and says, I have Achilles tendinopathy. I've tried everything. My three questions for that patient would be, I want you to tell me exactly where your pain is during a load test. Now it's a load test, clear not palpation. And the reason for that is palpation is really misleading. Lots of things can be sensitive, but it's not specific. So if I squeeze your Achilles, it could be sural nerve, it could be paratenon, it could be Achilles tendinopathy. So it really is with a load test. And we know that tendon pain in the lower limb actually remains very well localized under loading, even regardless of length of time of symptoms. And the second question you're going to ask them is what activities provoke their tendon pain? Because we know that tendon pain is intimately linked with the type of load that you do. So in the Achilles, we're thinking of, say, mid portion. We're thinking of our running, our change of direction type activities. If you've got an older person, just be cognizant of the fact that even you know walking downstairs is an energy storage activity for that tendon, and that's why we can see Achilles tendinopathy throughout the lifespan. But the third question that I I love this question is. Does your pain warm up or does it get worse the longer you go? The reason for that is tendons warm up. And this is how people get themselves into trouble actually because they'll go for a run, they'll feel pretty crummy at the start, it'll warm up, they'll feel much better so they'll overdo it only to pay for it the next day. That's classic tendon. So what we're looking for in your patient with Achilles tendinopathy is that she's reporting really focal pain in that mid-region. They tend to pinch either side of their tendon and that it's this dose-dependent load. So if you got your patient to do calf raises on on two legs, followed by calf raises on one leg, followed by double leg jumps, followed by single leg hops, you would see a dose-dependent increase in pain severity that would remain very localised. If we contrast this with a peritendon, This will be the the patient that says to you, I just bought a new bike and I did heaps of cycling and that's repeated plantar flexion, dorsiflexion, but you're not asking your tendon to act like a spring. Another really good example is the person that says, you know, I do a lot of swimming. Well, I don't care how hard you push off the wall. That is not high load for a tendon. So understanding what is high tendon load is really critical your person with a, a sheath issue or a peritendon issue or a paratenon issue, they're all synonyms. We're just talking about the outside synovial layers that slide and glide over a tendon. A person that has that presentation also reports quite diffuse pain. Patients are very helpful. They show you the whole tendon. It can be very difficult to localize. And when you're assessing them, Claire, with the double leg calf risers, you know, into a single, into your double leg hops, into your single leg hops, They'll be provoked by the movement loading. So they'll be provoked during the double and single calf raises, but actually their jumps and their hops could be pain-free depending on how much range of motion they're going through. And why does all of that matter? It matters because that lady might say to you, I've done all my calf raises and they made me worse. Well, if you have a parotene on, of course they did because it's a, it's a range of movement related condition. And that's why differential diagnosis is important. One more little tip for picking up a on is dig out your stethoscope that you would have had from your final year cardio prac that you've never looked at ever again. And this is a tip from Professor Craig Purdom. If you get your patient to lie prone on a physioplint and you put the stethoscope over their tendon and get them to plantiflex and dorsiflex, you can hear the crepitus. So it's a great diagnostic tool, but it's also a great outcome measure. So differential diagnosis would be the very first place to start with that person. Ebony, we love practical
0: tips. That was fantastic. So many gems for clinical practice right there and gems that listeners will be able to take to practice with them tomorrow. When you've done that differential diagnosis, where do you go next? What are your goals for that session? And then what are your goals for a treatment, a course of treatment overall with someone who's come in and said, look, I've tried everything. I've had this for a long time. Is the goal to completely ameliorate the
1: pain and get rid of it? Or is it something different? So I base my session on Professor Laura Mosley's sort of four questions of self-efficacy. So what I'd like my patient to understand and that we develop together is people want to know what's wrong with me, what can you do about it, what can I do about it, and how long will it take? And if we structure our education in that way, we can help the person understand their condition. And as David Butler would say, really meet them at their story. So if they do have a peritendon, you can say to them, well, actually, I know you've been really adherent with your exercises, but I want to explain to you why you haven't gotten better. If they're coming in using words like tendinitis, you have to deal with it because that actually tells you a lot about their underlying understanding of what's going on and what they think they need to do about it. So if they think it's inflamed, you could write the world's best exercise program. They're going to be sitting there thinking, she's nuts. Doesn't she know it's inflamed or it's hanging on by a thread? Language is so important in the words we use, but picking up on what our patients use to give us an opportunity, a bit of a weigh-in for a discussion. Once I think I have a diagnosis, just say we are going to go with Achilles tendinopathy, then it's really important to listen to what they've tried and where someone's taken them in previous rehab. So we all like to be evidence-based, we should be evidence-based, but I don't want anyone listening to be recipe-driven. The reason for that in tendons is as researchers, and I'm guilty of this too, we ask research questions and our question might be, is this exercise program better than this exercise program over four weeks? Now, that's not a complete rehabilitation. That's telling you what you might do in a unique situation in season, for example. And Claire, tendon research is really focused on quite early management. So there's a lot of time-based intervention as opposed to goal-based, which is what our patients come to us with. I want to be able to run, not I want to see you for six weeks. The other thing is strength training interventions are very easy to compare two groups. But as soon as you get into the fluffiness of criteria-based progression, research becomes hard. What you can't honestly do is go to the research at the moment and get a complete rehabilitation because my start point and my end point are completely different to the people in that study. Where I would go in this interaction is I want to know what someone's start point is. And that's what my objective assessment is. It's my to-do list. Your subjective assessment informs your endpoint. What do they want to be able to do? How far do they want to run? How fast? Do they have a time-based criteria? Have they already signed up for a half marathon? What are we working with? Because that'll tell you where do I need to take this person and this tendon? And then I'll explain to them and Jill Cook and Sean Docking have this wonderful editorial in BJSM that talk about current capacity and required capacity and breaking it down into steps. And I'll draw that for my patient and say, what we're going to do is we're going to get you uber strong because if we have a really strong muscle that actually allows our tendon to do its job and act like a spring, but we can't stop there. We need to retrain you to be springy and something like running is a series of hops So those interim stages of teaching you to be springy are really important and really not covered very well in research. The clinical downfalls are that people have done too many things on double leg. Now, running is a series of hops. Everything needs to be single leg. The exception will be glute med if you want to talk about it, but essentially everyone else should be doing things on one leg at a time and equally strong. The second thing people do is that they use the contralateral leg as the comparator, but they actually detrain it. They try and be even in their rehabilitation when actually what you want to do is use the concept of cross-education, strength train one side as much as it can do. It'll actually drag up your tendinopathy side and you'll get there quicker. And the third thing that I see is that people have just on the early stage recipe-based heel drop program and then tried to return to run. They really haven't graded and progress someone back through individualized tendon loading. So let's talk a little bit about that exercise
0: part of it and start with eccentrics, because I think that's probably where most of our brains go. Is it all about eccentrics? Is it just a case of give them eccentrics and she'll be right, mate? If
1: that were true, I probably wouldn't have a research career. I'm glad to say that it's actually not that simple, but it's also hard to say that it's not that simple. I often get asked, you know, what's better, eccentrics or isometrics? And what I want to direct people towards is the better question is, when do I use that exercise type? So there's actually a role for all of them. The key thing is, Claire, is working out right patient, right time, right dosage. So to give you an example, eccentrics, if they're given in-season on top of already high in-season loads actually make people worse and people stop doing them. It's a very old study um, by Visner's, fantastic study in the patella tendon. But what that showed us was that we can't apply recipe across every person in every environment. In a rehabilitation, it's really about understanding exercise prescription and where it fits into their rehabilitation journey.
0: And folks listening will know some of your work in isometrics and particularly using isometrics to modulate pain. So can you tell us where does that come from and how would you suggest people might think about building an isometric program into managing tricky tendons?
1: Okay, so the the way I might use that research in terms of isometric and isotonic is I'm I'm really pragmatic. I would try an isometric protocol for someone And if it helped them and if they like it, then what they have is a tool that really empowers them to use as they need for analgesia, as they need for confidence. It's a way into exercise. Exercise is safe. So it might be a nice start point, but don't keep them there. If someone's going to try an isometric, it's an early intervention. They need to move on to isotonic, concentric, eccentric, and they need to move on to the energy storage. It's definitely not a complete rehabilitation Yeah, and I really
0: like, Ebony, how you've talked about the different approaches to strength training, because I think when we read the research, there's a bit of a risk of feeling like, okay, I just do eccentric training and that's it, or I just do concentric training and that's it. And I think some people have got a bit, almost a bit dogmatic in that. And what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing from you is that all of these options are on the table and then it's your clinical skills and expertise as a physio or as a physical therapist who then working with the patient to figure out what's going to work best for the person in front of you at
1: that time. Be really practical. If you have someone that you suspect it's patelotendinopathy and they're saying to you, I get pain on the leg extension doing isometric or isotonic and my pain gets worse, then don't try and crack on. Meet them at their story. Ask them where their pain is. If their pain is getting worse and spreading, you know, I'd go back to my differential. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you call it. That's not a good intervention for them. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about plyometric
0: training, because I think we can all agree that that's really important, but it can be a challenge to get right and to know when should I introduce it? How should I manage that load? So Ebony, what are your tips for people designing and monitoring a plyometrics program
1: for someone with tricky tendons? So my two key go-tos for introducing spring are that using stairs and using a skipping rope. So let's talk about the Achilles because that's the most common tendon that we will see. If you get someone and they've gone through their, their strength programs, so just say we have a runner, you've got them doing your strength endurance repeated calf rises. We get them to do at least 30 to 35 if they want to run a couple of times a week because that gives us good coverage. Same with court and field athletes. I have had an ultra marathon runner that I pushed his endurance up far more than that. He was up around 45 or 50. I don't know how many he needs to be able to do, but a lot I would suggest for the average person that just wants to walk around and not run, but still need to be able to attenuate body weight loads, stepping off a curb. You might pitch it somewhere around 20 to 25. They actually still need reasonable capacity. So that's just to give you a bit of a benchmark. Once someone can achieve those numbers, what I might then do is introduce a bit of a functional spring. So something like walking up and down stairs actually allows your muscle to work sort of quasi-isometrically, which is a nice introduction to running. And then we might start using a metronome. So say 100 beats per minute. What that'll do is also allow you a really targeted progression. So I get people walking up and down flights of stairs, keeping their heel up quite a functional position. Then what we'll do, Claire, is we'll get them up to you know 130. Once they're up around 130 plus beats per minute, it's actually more of a jog. So up around 150 and you do get a little bit of energy storage. And what you can do is you can progress the speed, you can progress the number of stairs. You do this on alternate days. So you've got time to listen to the tendon and you'd keep your calf raises in. So you keep your strength in. So it might be Monday strength, Tuesday stairs, Wednesday strength, and so on. And each morning you're listening to your tendon. If your pain is low and stable, and you said right at the start is pain the most important thing, no function is. So someone's pain is low and stable and you increase their load, that's a happy tendon. It doesn't need to be zero. And it's really important that people understand that if their pain spikes, you'll know exactly what it was because it'll be what they did the day before and you can adjust it accordingly. I'll progress someone up through stairs Even if I don't get someone running through stairs, even if they just get up to the walking phase, I love that because for even older people in our community, they need to be able to go up and down stairs and step off a curb. So it's a really functional spring. But equally, I can progress that back to a runner, back to an Olympic athlete. And then I'd get them back into some sort of return to run program. The other one that I'll use for the Achilles is skipping. Skipping. Craig Perdom also does some lovely track and field drills like some bunny hops. If someone's a change of direction athlete, then my rehabilitation includes some different change of direction drills. So it's about breaking down what they want to do and making your plyometrics the building blocks for that. Ebony, what about the gym equipment? When are you going to the gym? Again, it depends on their goal. So if you're working with an an athlete, or you're working with someone that wants to run some decent kilometres, then they're actually going to need strength that you can't get from home. Now, during the pandemic, we had to make do, but the ideal scenario is that for athletes, we're actually going above body weight loads with their strength, so that they have sufficient capacity. So to give you an idea of that, if you have a jumping athlete, they actually need to be able to leg press one and a half times their body weight single leg for four lots of six. And we know that because that's the sort of forces they need to attenuate when they do a counter movement jump. Again, getting back to the Achilles, which is the most common one we will see, that totally depends on what they want to do. If they're a less active person, they could be managed at home. But if they want to run, they will really benefit from going to the gym. And often I've seen people, they've tried to manage at home. And so I'll just ask people, would you try a three-month gym membership to really get on top of this And, and go three times a week and write you out a program and just ask people if they're prepared to go? So you do need to actually be incredibly strong for some of our athletic activities But you know, strength training is great for all of us. And so I do try and push that if I can. And often if you can get them there, they tend to love it and they'll stay. There's a lot of benefits on our musculoskeletal system during strength training. So it is my bias, but I do appreciate it's not for everyone. Now let's
0: start to wrap up here a bit, Ebony. Can we recap those for folks listening? What are
1: those core principles again for treating tendons? Let's do a top three for diagnoses and a top three for treating. So for diagnoses, tendon pain in the lower limb is incredibly localized and your pain severity goes up with dose-dependent load. So people need to understand what's high load for that tendon. Running is high load for the Achilles, but it's not for the patella tendon. My second thing is make sure you ask about tendon pain behavior. Tendons warm up only to be worse the next day. That's a characteristic feature. If you have someone that's getting worse, the longer they go, you have to be cognizant of a differential diagnosis, which with a tendon will often be the sheath. My third tip for differentiating the peritendon from the tendon would be dig out your stethoscope because that'll really help you with picking up the crepitus. And all of that matters because it it's a divergence of clinical reasoning. People can get stuck on... That running is always Achilles tendinopathy. If you have a runner that gets worse, the longer they go, the reason for that is as they start, they're able to maintain their heel height reasonably. But if they fatigue, they go through bigger ranges of motion and they overload the peritendon. And that's why that second question around tendon pain behavior is critical. Now, my top tips for management would be meet the person at their story for their start point point and make sure you've picked up any language or fear in the subjective that might be an opportunity for a conversation and for you to direct them towards more evidence-based understanding of the condition. It's not an inflammatory condition. They don't need rest ice anti-inflammatories when we're talking about tendinopathy. So don't let them get away with words like tendinitis because there'll be a mismatch between their understanding and your rehab. My second tip would be Don't get focused on which exercise should I do as my rehabilitation. How can I prescribe exercise in a progressive, evidence-informed, individualized manner that gets someone back to where they want to be? And my third one kind of feeds in, don't stop at strength. Don't be scared of introducing these spring-like loads once someone has the capacity because that's the critical steps they need between where they are and, and where they want to go. You can't just do a strength program and then go back to running. They'll fail.
0: Fantastic. And, Ebony, what about for our more experienced listeners? What would you suggest that they try or that they consider the next time that they're working with someone who has tendinopathy? Have
1: a think about how you might reduce their risk of recurrence maybe for the next season. So if we think about in an athletic environment, if you're managing someone in season, the goal is to, is to get them through. But have be forward thinking. Think about what education you might need at the end of the season so that they don't spend six weeks lying on a beach they'll actually need to do something in their off season. So think about how you can get them to buy into getting ready for the next season. And what are your objective measures going to be? How many calf raises does my athlete need? How strong do they need to be on the standing Smith machine? What does their leg press need to be? Be really objective and get them on board with all of the goals that you need. Think about how you can avoid just managing someone with teninopathy and actually allow them to get back to performance. What can you do that actually means their next season is a cracker? My second tip for experienced um, clinicians would be don't be scared of load. A lot of the athletes that I see, a lot of the second opinions that I see, not even athletes, they've been underloaded. We haven't pushed their strength to a sufficient level. And we also haven't done some of those, those spring type levels. People, when I go to footy clubs, Claire, are often shocked that I expect them to be able to lift their body weight on top of their body weight and not just one rep max, that's four lots to six, four by six on a leg press for one and a half times body weight. People can't believe it, but that's actually the sort of load you need. And do not be afraid of load in season. They're getting sufficient energy storage load in their training and playing, but don't be afraid of the gym. Don't think that's going to freshen them up by avoiding leg weights. They actually need leg weight. I love it. Dr. Ebony Rio, this has been
0: an absolute tendon masterclass. Thank you so much for sharing this amazing clinical experience, blending it with your excellent research skills. It's been a joy and a a privilege to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me.